Investors Chronicle. Welcome back to the Companies and Markets podcast. It is Thursday, 12th of January, 2023. Delighted to welcome Val Cipriani back to the pod for the first time this year. Hi, Val. Hi, how are you doing? Very good. Good to have you with us. Alex Newman's in the studio. Hello, Alex. Hello, John. And we've got Mark over the line. Hi, Mark. Good morning, John. Good afternoon. I think you'll find Mark and Julian <laughs> as well. Hi, Julian. <laughs> Hello, um, John. And then Dan Jones hosting. Dan, what's coming up today? Hi, John. Yeah, a few things today as usual. We start with Direct Line. Pretty disappointing trading update yesterday. So we're going to dig into that a little bit. Then we are going to discuss a platform issue, uh, specifically uh, some of the proactive moves that Fidelity has been taking on their platform in relation to what retail investors can and can't do. And finally, we are going to talk a little bit about China and some structural changes there in terms of supply chains and companies maybe rethinking their approach to China and also a little bit about reopening as it uh, scraps its zero COVID policies. Lovely stuff. Well, let's have a look at some company movers and shakers uh, just before we get to that. First up, UK pharma giant AstraZeneca has spent £1.5 billion to acquire US biotech firm Syncor. The company specialises in a drug to treat high blood pressure. Microsoft are discussing an investment in the latest artificial intelligence phenomena, ChatGPT. They are reportedly looking to buy a third of ChatGPT owner OpenAI uh, to the tune of around $10 billion. Shares in Robert Walters fell 8% on Tuesday morning after the recruiter said that full-year profits would fall below market expectations. Competitor Page Group also took a 6% hit. And the newspaper publisher Reach fell 25% on Wednesday after the group announced its annual operating profit would underperform expectations. House builders uh, Barrett fell 3% after revealing a 44% slump in sales. Persimmon, on the other hand, saw shares up 7% despite private sales nosediving in 2022. The Irish house building landscape is proving more fruitful, with Cairn jumping 4% on a 46% rise in revenue. Online fashion retailer ASOS shares jumped 19% this Thursday morning after a, quote, significant improvement in profitability and cash generation. Thus, despite sales falling in the four month to December 31st. And British gas owner Centrica has said its 2022 earnings would be seven times higher than in 2021. With Centrica operating as both a retailer and a wholesaler, they've managed to effectively capture the profits offered to gas companies by the ongoing energy crisis. And finally, there were solid Christmas updates from supermarkets Sainsbury's, Tesco's and Marks and Spencer's, with consumers apparently not put off their turkeys, sprouts and cranberry sauce yet uh, by inflation. Lots more, as ever, on our website and in the magazine. But for now, the rest of the show, with you, Dan. Thanks, John. Yeah, there's a raft of trading updates around today, and the going is pretty good to firm, I guess, as, uh, as they say. Retail continues its theme of beating muted expectations. Centrica has raised guidance. Even Persimmon, which hasn't put out great figures, has had a bit of a relief rally. So things are looking OK, but we are going to talk about one of the black marks of the week, which is Direct Line. Certainly the biggest disappointment, I think, it's trading update out on Wednesday. Uh, cold inflation, cold inflation, cold weather and claims inflation mean it scrapped its final dividend. 
Uh, more to the point, this is quite a big turnaround from what the company was saying just a few weeks ago in November. Julian, you looked at the trading updates. Your thought? It was certainly very disappointing, Dan. The problem the company has is that, that you can't really put your finger on one single reason why they consistently underperform. So yeah. one of the reasons was given was, as you said, the cold weather, so more burst pipes, more cars sliding on ice into each other's garages, and the, the replacement for all that costing a lot more money because uh, parts parts prices have gone up. And But, I mean, that's kind of the same for all of the motor insurers. Uh, and the, the mystery really is why it's hit direct lines specifically so hard and why the markets reacted so badly to it. I mean, part of that, I think, is that investors were very cautious of how what the management says these days because it was only eight weeks ago that they were saying that, you know, things were generally okay and, uh, you know, they would keep their earnings online and things like that. Um and now that you know investors are looking at dividend cuts, and yeah, one of the primary reasons of any direct line was that it always had a quite a high dividend yield that uh, income investors could more or less rely on. And in many ways, that was its only attraction. It's been a sort of consistent value trap for many years. I mean, you have to go back to 2014 or something, not long after the Scottish Bank as. Um, the more suspicious of a superstitious of us uh, like to call it uh, divested the company ever since uh, that point really the the shares have never seen have never had a hope of getting back to the 410p they were in november 2015 and yeah the reputation as something that you know you just held for income and just hoped for the best in terms of the share price has been there for quite a while but uh, i mean this down leg it, it, it is indicative of of i think a multitude of small problems all coming together at the same time for them. You know, it, it's a very disappointing company in many ways. But uh, I, I don't know. I mean, I don't know what other people's view is, but I've, just, I've never found them very convincing. It seems rather odd to me, anyway, that uh, provision for uh, these these aren't even catastrophic losses. Uh, one imagines, but you would think the these type of potential losses would be covered in their underwriting policies, anyway. This this all boils down to. Uh, solvency uh, ultimately as well and it would be reasonable to assume that they they've they've been in, inadequate for, uh, from that perspective as well the fact that they uh, had a prospective yield of around 10 percent should have been as much of a red flag as an attraction for investors too but it just it seems very peculiar to me that a general insurance company would be sort of uh yeah, I mean they're not it's, small. I mean they're the second, the, the you know the second biggest in the country. I mean, I mean, admittedly a, a relatively distant second to Admiral, but you know mm. they've still got eleven percent of the market. And um, I mean, I looked at this with a bit more depth, and uh, it seems to me like there, are, you know, underneath the surface of the company, there's a lot been going on in the last couple of years, and a lot of people have been moving and leaving, and you know, responsibilities have been handed out in different ways. Yeah, the chief operating officer left in 2021. He wasn't replaced. Yeah, so if it's, as, as uh, you know, some advice for our listeners: if if you want to uh, if you want to plan a military coup, you don't go to the generals. You always go to the colonels. It's always the people yeah. in the second rank who know how the business works, and you know they count the paper paper clips, and you know make sure everything's working. And you do wonder whether the number of changes they've made have actually contributed to their to their issues in terms of you know keeping on top of their. Their underwriting and um, 
you know making sure that um, the market isn't they're not so exposed in any one area but um, yeah clearly something's gone wrong we'll come on to the the wider insurance market in a second but i just wanted to return to the the high yield that you mentioned and mark as you you said that maybe that should have been a warning sign but alex we we did include direct line in our list of uh high yielders last week uh you know there's a potential risk there but mm. that risk has manifested uh itself very quickly uh, yeah. and in a surprising fashion with the the full year dividend cut yeah so we yeah we included it in our in one of our five portfolios of uh in the ideas of the year and yeah the, i mean the the yield was very high but i think the consensus forecast was for it to be cut not for it to be abandoned as it has been by management following this update um but yeah so yeah i mean when when you're looking kind of above sort of eight eight percent you're getting into potentially danger ter- territory i mean uh, things have changed a little bit now given where inflation is and, and what uh, income investors are asking for you know the, the fact that it, it has been you know, it's as, as Julian said, it's kind of income case has been the reason to hold it was a reason why uh, we decided to include it in the uh, portfolio. I, I sort of agree with Julian as well that, you know, this is quite a, it's, this is quite a sort of sudden and extreme move. I mean, the charitable view is that the weather was really extreme and unexpected, but the less charitable view is that the management just really telegraphed this very, very poorly. Um, and, uh, I mean, you know, the Goldilocks of insurance underwriting is very, very hard to achieve to make a profit in in something which is so um, commoditized as as uh, as driving insurance or home insurance. Um, but yeah, they've you know something has gone wrong here. Really, they've 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 slipped up, not been able to forecast it, even though eight weeks ago things were looking re- in a reasonable position. But yeah, the the income case is certainly gone now for this year at least. Yeah, well, they, or for for twenty twenty two at least. Yeah, say. they do say they. You know, as it stands, they yeah. intend to pay a full dividend for 2023, which obviously, you know, we'll see how that pans out because it, it does seem, uh, uh, you know, the, the cost inflation, aside from the cold weather issue, the cost inflation is proving problematic. Um, premiums, well, certainly in the third quarter, they didn't give an update on the fourth quarter and uh, uh, this metric, but premiums have been falling faster than volumes, which suggests, you know, they haven't been able to pass on costs that well. Uh, there's a lot of competition in the market, obviously. I think maybe it's also notable this week the FCA uh, suggested, you know, it's putting a bit of pressure on insurers to waive some fees for vulnerable customers, which again calls into question the, the pricing power. We did see a bit of a reaction from the sector in general, whether it was to the FCA, whether it was to direct line, probably more of the latter, but a bit of both. So I wonder if there's more of a read across for the, for the sector as well, Julian, aside from, you know, direct lines issues it has internally in terms of the sector's ability to deal with the high inflation environment yeah i mean that is the the million dollar question i mean they have they've had a lot of regulatory hits i mean you're right that the fca has been after them for about about these um particular uh type of um vulnerability fees but uh, the more more significant one was the end of what uh, everyone calls price walking which is you know where they could basically charge existing customers a above inflation rate every year for loyalty effectively um and that's caused the you know the general insurers particularly problems because uh, the market is so competitive that there's only so much leeway they have in pricing in terms of uh, acquiring new customers. And uh, you know you think that kind of leads you to think that uh, part of the problem would have been that they've been over over underwriting or you know overwriting the book in order to make up for that, which is why they kind of have been particularly 
uh, hit particularly hard. But um, yeah, it, it is an issue for everyone. But you know, the, the the mystery is why it's such an issue for direct line when uh, you know the, the likes of Admiral and Aviva, who have a certain amount of presence in this market. Um, you know, don't seem to, although their shares have fallen, they don't seem to have been hit anywhere near as hard. But I mean, we have to wait for their trading updates probably to see if, see if there's any read across. Mm. Well, I suppose, you know, a direct line, if they are pinning all on the weather and a difficult December, given it's been quite a mild January, might be a mild February, we should be expecting much better things from them in uh, uh, a few months' time. But that's we'll just probably one... going to hurricane season. Well, season yeah, yeah. <laughs> just one point, Dan, as well. I just wonder how much of this is related to um, the disruption that occurred because of the, the pandemic as well, because claim rates were... were uh, extremely low during that period as well and uh, as we all know that's a chief determinant in uh, future premium rates too so perhaps they're coming under the, the wire simply because of the lag from covid i don't know if that's the case but uh, it'd be worth examining something to consider there well let's move on to the next section nonetheless we are going to talk about fidelity now for platform which some of our listeners may use for their investments and they've been in the news this month because they have suspended investor access to Jupiter UK mid-cap. The company hasn't provided an explanation. The fund does have some unlisted holdings, and like many mid-cap funds, it's had a pretty tough time of it, which means as the listed holdings fall as a percentage of the portfolio, the unquoted proportion rises. It's been getting quite close to the 10% limit. So there's concerns there over you know liquidity risk and and what happens if it if it breaches that limit. So you would suspect that's the motivation behind Fidelity's decision. Although, like I said, they haven't actually provided any uh, uh, reasoning on the website, which is interesting in itself. And it's also interesting, uh, Val, you've written about that this week that a platform, an execution only platform, is doing this. You know, it is taking decisions on behalf of its customers. Uh, regarding w- what funds they can they can access in this case. Yeah, yeah, basically that's what they're doing. Um, and as you say, they only say they believe this is in the best interest of the clients, but they do not explain what their thinking is, which potentially some experienced investors might find a bit um, confusing and jarring um, because, yeah, as you say, uh, they cannot have any new investments in the fund, although they can obviously sell their shares, whereas advisors um, are still kind of at liberty to do what they want on the advised side of the Fidelity platform. Yeah, it kind of generates some questions, doesn't it? Because um, so other platforms for now, it doesn't look like they're doing the same thing. So, for example, AJ Bell told us that for now they they have no plan to do so um, and the fund is still available on Hargreaves Lansdowne. Hargreaves has like a sort of a different strategy because they've got a little notification on top that kind of leads you to the research that they've done and that tells you why they're worried about the fund, but it doesn't stop you from investing into it if you want or if you want to take a contrarian view. Yeah, and so I guess the question is, why why is this platform kind of telling people what they can and cannot do with their money? Especially because, you know, it's not like a gentle nudge, like you shouldn't invest in this fund. It's more like you absolutely cannot, sorry, uh, if you want to, 
you're going to have to go somewhere else. Fidelity is also not um, new to this because it's done something similar um, last year, like in 2022, although for it seems for different reasons because they haven't explained it. But um, again, they stopped new investments into three other funds and there were reports that it might have been because they breached um, like a charges threshold that they had set internally and unofficially. And again, Fidelity did not confirm this. And again, one might think, well, if you're going to stop me from investing in something, I would at least want to know why you're doing that. There is also kind of an argument in favor of what they're doing, which is obviously the kind of like protection of investors who might not be as experienced or might not follow follow the news as closely and might not know uh, what potentially is the problem with this fund. And this has seems to have quite a bit to do with what the financial conduct conduct authority is doing because the consumer duty rules which are expected to come into effect in July this year so 2023 they say that basically they they kind of need to take a bit of responsibility and make sure that a product so in this case a fund uh, provides fair value to customers and they sort of should make sure that they address any risks to good customer outcomes they say so for now, the other platforms are not doing the same thing as Fidelity is, but uh, there is a bit of a question in terms of whether they will need to do it at some point yeah. or kind of like make a like take a clearer stance on this kind of thing. Yeah, as you say, it does seem potentially partly regulation driven. You know, the, the FCA has been keen on platforms to do more for their customers, but but uh, and you know, protecting inexperienced investors is certainly a laudable aim. But as you say, when you have a large selection of different types of retail investors, you know, you're, you're to some extent the, the more experienced ones who, who might be want to, wanting to, you know, take a, a, a play on, you know, an out-of-favour funder will fall victim to the need to protect the, the inexperienced ones. And the other question, I suppose, is where where do you draw the line on the, these issues? Uh, you know, they have a, again, reportedly, if they have an internal charges threshold, if they have, you know, they're starting to worry about certain funds like this funds, you know, what? this fund what other funds might they be worried about who makes that decision you know when is that decision made how do they judge these things it's all you know it's difficult to i imagine in most cases people won't know until they're prevented from from investing in the fund and as you say it is just very different from what retail investors have come to expect from their platform you know it normally it's not like you're working with an advisor uh, or even a stockbroker, old-fashioned style, if you want to say old-fashioned, uh, is very much you know transactional platform, isn't it? Uh, or it has been in the past. So this is quite different. And yeah, I, I find it quite interesting to see whether regulation will push more people in that direction. Yeah, it is. It is. Yeah, kind of a bit unexpected, isn't it? And then there's platforms tend to have like research and analysts, so they will nudge customers a little bit, like try mm. to help them make the right choices. But yeah, as you say, it's it's not the same thing at all from stopping them from investing in something. Um, and again, without having clear criteria on when that you know that they're going to do that. I was, I was going to say, is, I mean, one of the problems this has thrown up is that, you know, it's left us and, you know, potential investors affected by this just to speculate. Because until they explain why they're doing it, we, that's that's all we can do. And I was, I was actually, for my sins, I was looking through the consumer duty legislation 
to try and get a handle on on how on if Fidelity has interpreted those rules to to mean that they need to gate certain funds, and that may be the case. They may have just arrived at that conclusion. But there, there is also part of the consumer duty legislation. It's quite complicated. And I think it's a bit vague as well. But they talk about where consumers can only be expected to take responsibility where firms' communications enable them to understand their products. So this is about this consumer understanding part of the rule. And if you're not if you're not giving an explanation as to why you're doing it, then it doesn't really give a full account of the risks. And I don't know. I don't really know how that, that it fits in with their interpretation of mm. these rules coming down the track. But I mean, this is quite common from my time in the past, covering mm. various FCA documents in the past. It, by the nature, you know, they, can't, they have to be everything to everyone. And it does mean a lot of the uh, the regulation is broad and it is open to interpretation. And that means you, you're left with companies doing things in different ways and hoping each of them hoping that they are the, they're not going to be the ones that fall foul of the regulator. And of course, you'll get some who are playing it safer. I mean, again, we, we are this is speculation. It may be nothing at all to do with regulation. It may be Fidelity have decided that's what they they need to do in general you know i'm sure the the shadow of woodford hangs over these things and they they m- might think well if this does happen this will be a you know a big pr win for us if uh, you know if we say oh we stopped investors investing in this fund months ago and everyone else is, is stuck in it anyway for the final section of the show we're going to go very much more macro we're going to look at china mark you have written about china this week in the magazine uh, focusing on, uh, to some extent, suppliers and supply chains and companies moving production away from China. Uh, there's been a few examples of this recently. Uh, today, this morning, in fact, uh, Nikkei, our sister publication, has reported that Dell and perhaps HP are also looking to move production away uh, from China or at least diversify their sources of production. So it does seem to be a bit of an emerging trend, uh, certainly over the last year and maybe one that will continue this year as well. Yeah, I, I, there are a number of reasons for this as well. I, I think it's worth um, uh, remembering that uh, there were major changes to supply chain management even prior to the pandemic as well, and before any political considerations linked to China. Um, and, and that was largely because of the general digital transformation. Companies were... Um, companies were looking at the cost benefits that could be generated from this and i guess that to an extent that uh that makes the cost benefits companies can gain from uh basing production some of their or all of their production in china um it mitigates it to a, a certain extent and that was already happening that was already happening and uh people the the the, the onus now is on uh, building resilience into uh, supply chains um uh, so the considerations uh, linked to production costs and the size of uh, China's domestic uh, market uh, have have gone down the pecking order a little bit. There's obviously a security uh, issue linked to this as well. For instance, uh, you know, the US government has explicitly stated that they're targeting China's semiconductor uh, uh, production capacity and um, capabilities as well. And that's a geopolitical move uh, to try and, um, you know, offset their progress in other areas. But of course, the Chinese sort of lead the world in reverse engineering. So how successful that will be, I don't know. But on on that score as well, that sort of uh, heightens uh, the tensions over Taiwan as well, because obviously Taiwan is the preeminent uh, semiconductor manufacturer in the world. And doubtless uh, Beijing have been looking on uh, 
at Taiwan as well from a strategic angle as much as anything else. And um, a lot of the moves that we're seeing now are in fact linked to geopolitics rather than those narrow considerations over production costs and the size of uh, China's domestic uh, market. So it'll be interesting to see over the coming months if, if that trend, uh, well, if, if a trend is has been firmly established. Yeah, as you say, the, the the Chips Act in the U.S. does seem to be a big driver at the moment. The companies who are or have been reported to be moving production, they are, you know, a lot of them are tech or even chip based. And much like the U.S. Inflation Act, there does, does seem to be a piece of legislation that is having real observable impacts on on how companies do business. Uh, as you say, there is a pre-pandemic and also pandemic effect as well. Obviously, supply chains have been struggling for a long time now not helped by, in recent months by uh, various lockdowns continuing to occur in China. Uh, of course, that seemingly has all rapidly faded away. Uh, you know, we've got a, a China reopening now, which I know, which I think could be a, a real massive kind of boom this year for various sectors. I think we were talking earlier uh, away from the podcast, but just about, you know, the impact on the commodities complex, potentially the impact on tourism around the world. If you get Chinese tourists, you know, that pent up demand we've seen in the US, UK, uh, coming from China in much bigger numbers. Luxury goods, uh, exactly. aviation volumes, I mean, you, you name it, you know. So the, that could be, in the in the short term, the, that could be a, a counterweight, I suppose, in some ways, where companies think, well, actually, we're going to get some decent production from our Chinese factory and some, you know, for the first time in a while, and we're actually going to, you know, maybe even benefit from pickup in demand as well from, from China for those companies who, uh, who benefit from that. So it's another thing to consider, I suppose. And, and from last year as well, um, for for a, a, an eighteen month period, two, eighteen months to two year period, uh, China had pursued a sort of non interventionist uh, policy uh, in regards uh, to their some of their large internal markets, uh, you know, most notably the the real estate market. Although that turned out to be something of a fudge, really. But now uh, central government policy is uh, targeting uh, infrastructure development and also the expansion of China's domestic uh, uh, retail market too. On that first point is there, uh, you know, that that that's uh, infrastructure development was one of the main reasons why China's economy developed as quickly uh, as it did or, or return those incredible growth rates over a 20 year period really. But um, I'm just thinking to Japan's example when uh, during the 80s and 90s, when they were well, they were pushing, you know, massive infrastructure uh, spending uh, internally there, and it didn't really have the desired effect in terms of uh, growth rates. So I, I don't know if that's going to play out in China. Um, you know, the Chinese economy is much la larger. So, you know, you, you're not going to get those, you know, 10% growth rates anymore just through uh, the fact that it's coming on a, you know, proportionally. You're 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 never going to get that again, or I doubt it very much. Um, but what it will do as well, it will boost up uh, prices within or underpin prices within the uh, uh, commodity sector going forward too. But uh, we just are waiting a little bit of detail on that front. Mm. I, I suppose the, the political side of things is maybe another reason why companies might be reconsidering their investments there, you know, even on the, re the reopening side, the fact that, okay, from a, a corporate point of view, it looks like it might be pretty good news. But again, it was, you know, in many ways, completely blindsided people, albeit uh, for the better, perhaps they might be considering, they might consider it to be for the better. But 
Again, it's very hard to have a, a sight of, of what might be going on on the ground in China with domestic policy at any given time. And, and you know, that seems to have become even cloudier in recent years, which might be affecting companies' thinking. Yeah, in the, in the article as well, I, I quote some recent re- research as well uh, from uh, Oxford Analytica, uh, which seems to point that business leaders themselves are far more worried about the, the political risk in uh, the Asia-Pacific region, you know, largely uh, linked to uh, uh, China's uh, sort of ambitions, uh, that seems to have um, increased dramatically in, in recent times. And so, a lot of a lot of the production that we've we've talked about is has moved hasn't necessarily been reshored to the US and the UK. Some of it has, but it's been nearshored, uh, to use the the buzzword, to uh, economies uh, such as Vietnam and. Uh, India that are, that are more in keeping with, um, you know, the Western political stance and are considered lo- much lower risk than China. So, yeah, there is that geopolitical uh, consideration. Well, investors should look at that uh, as ge- geopolitics as a major consideration now when they're looking to gain exposure uh, to China. I mean, hopefully all this will blow over and, it would, and China's internal market will, um, you know, the Beijing measures will will drive that consumer market forward which will underpin the economy um you know, you know and there's other reasons as well why they're doing it you know it, it it isn't really good for any economy to run uh you know trade surpluses on that level um uh, for years on end uh you know even germany suffers from this but uh that was the main point point of the article anyway is just to highlight that uh, geopolitical risk yeah, it's definitely something investors will be keeping their eyes on. And the reopening as well, as I said, it could be a big theme for this year or certainly for the next six, 12 months in terms of its effects on various sectors. We will be keeping tabs on those ourselves, of course. And you can find much more information on all the topics we've discussed today on the website, in the magazine, as usual. But that does bring us to the end of the show. So thank you to Mark and to Julian, to Alex and to Val and to John. We will see you next time on another Companies and Markets show. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com.